Marketing can be an incredible force for good. It can inspire and motivate and make our world more just, equitable, and inclusive. But too often, marketing perpetuates the status quo for a select few rather than disrupting it for the greater good of all. This show looks to change that. Join me, your host, Erica Mills Barnhart, as we usher in a new era of marketing, an era of marketing for good. Well, hello there. Welcome to this episode of the Marketing for Good podcast. This episode, for some, may feel heavy, like something you kind of want to just like skip past, because it is about mental wellness, mental health, and mental illness. We're going to talk about the terminology as always. It also is very specifically about the stigma that surrounds mental illness when we use that term and the role that marketing plays in perpetuating that stigma. This show about marketing for good, this is an example of marketing for bad, marketing being naughty, marketing perpetuating things that don't serve us and that we don't want in society, right? We don't want this stigma. It doesn't serve anybody. So is it heavy? Yeah, it gets a little heavy, but Ian Adair, our guest, is he's so captivating. He's such an advocate for getting over the stigma. He just wrote a beautiful book called Stronger Than Stigma, which we'll talk much more about in this episode. The episode closes with this poem that even thinking about it gives me chills. So it is, yes, it's heavy, but also I found my conversation super inspiring. I want to give a little more context to this conversation, just so we're kind of all on the, on the same page as it were. In her book, The Naked Mind, Annie Grace says, survival deserves a medal, not a stigma. Survival deserves a medal, not a stigma. Now, Annie Grace is talking about surviving from alcohol dependency, and so much of what's in her book is applicable very widely including to this conversation about mental illness. I mean, it's really, it's really quite interesting. The statistic we hear often is that one in five U.S. adult, American adults, at some point in a year-long period are going to have some sort of mental disorder or episode or something. Ian's beautiful point is that citing that statistic perpetuates the othering of this. And it is in the othering of mental illness that we give power to the stigma. Instead, Ian says, hey, listen, five out of five of us, that's all of us, all of us in some form or fashion, whether it's it's because we are dealing with the mental health challenge or someone we know and love is, five out of five of us are dealing with this because it's so pervasive. So if this is a five out of five thing, how do we allow the othering and the stigma to continue? And marketing, you know, definitely plays a role in this. So we're going to talk about that. Now, one thing that didn't come up, it comes up a little bit near the end, if memory serves, is that mental illness affects ethnic and racial minorities differently. Okay. It, it affects them differently. So I'm not going to actually rattle off the statistics because I know a lot of you uh, are out walking or doing something else, which is totally cool. So I just, at the, at the, Big picture level, I want to say that depending on the statistics you look at, sometimes you'll see that Blacks are less impacted or have fewer instances of mental illness or mental health challenges or episodes. However, there's a, you know, a fair amount of research that says that's an underrepresentation. And also the stigma is greater and the access to care is less. So there's a bigger gap. Right. So one of the statistics um, that you'll hear about is that 43% of folks in the United States with any mental illness receive mental health treatment. Now, you may be like, well, that seems like a bright spot, Erica, 43%. Right. But the, there's a disproportionate one that leaves 57% who aren't. And if we, if we look at that in the context of the amount of underreporting that happens, 
we just have a lot of our neighbors, a lot of the people we love in this country suffering. And that's preventable and it's treatable. So this is something that we can do something about. There's some intractable problems that we can't do anything about. This is one that if we can get rid of the stigma and if we can get people connected to services, both things that marketing can help with, we could really make some headway. I find that exciting. <laughs> uh, we talk about some things in this episode that may be triggering to some listeners. And I want to say that up front because I want us to talk more about mental illness, mental wellness, mental health. The more we talk about it, the more it's normalized, the more it's normalized, the, the less power the stigma is going to have, right? It, it would just by definition have to loosen its grip. And if you are struggling, if you're feeling worried about your mental health right now, please push pause on this. Don't listen anymore. Pick up the phone and call the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-8255. I want this episode to make things better, not worse. So if you're listening and you're worried about that, take care of yourself. Make those phone calls. Um, reach out to a friend. Tell them what's going on. Take care of yourself. All right. For those of you that feel like you're ready for this, I do promise there's a lot of bright spots. Uh, there's a lot of upbeatness. He is such a positive ray of light, a force for good in the world. So I felt so grateful and blessed that he took time to join us. Like I said, the more we talk about it, the, the, the better chance we have that we will uh, reduce the stigma. And Ian talks about that so eloquently. And like I said, wait for the poem at the end, which comes out of Ian's book, Stronger Than Stigma. Wait for it. Truly gives me chills just thinking about it. So now let's you and me listen and learn from Ian Adair. So with me today is Ian Adair. Ian is a nonprofit industry influencer, TEDx speaker, and recognized expert in leadership, fundraising, and nonprofit management. He is an advocate, author, and speaker concerning mental health awareness and mental health in the workplace. Ian is the author of the very beautiful, very poignant, very powerful, my words, not his, book, Stronger Than Stigma, A Call to Action, Stories of Grief, Loss, and Inspiration. Ian is currently the executive director of the Grace Point Foundation, the philanthropic arm of Grace Point, one of the largest behavioral health organizations in the state of Florida. Grace Point impacts the lives of more than 30,000 individuals, both children and adults, seeking mental health, medical, and addiction services. Okay, so Ian, I want to read something from Grace Point Foundation website, which is referencing Grace Point. It says, since 1949, Grace Point has worked to become Tampa Bay's leading provider of behavioral health solutions dedicated to inspiring and creating life-changing wellness for every individual. So I want to quickly go into defining terms, but as I was preparing for, for this, it jumped out at me. I mean, it had to have been a very intentional choice to use the term wellness rather than focusing exclusively on the illness side of things. Right. Yes. It's, you know, I think, I think we overuse the term wellness in a, in a lot of things. I think we use it when we talk about any, anything from massages to salons to all these things, but in reference to mental health, it really talking about wellness is really talking about a state of well-being. So I use that term over and over, not only just in a lot of our marketing on the website, but also in the book as well. When we talk about a person's path to wellness, because I think anyone that's gone through anything traumatic, anyone that's dealing or living in active recovery, uh, anything, anybody who's experienced 
profound grief and loss is really looking to get back on that road to to wellness and having that state of uh, good health. And it takes some time and it takes some effort and it's messy, but we like to use that word when we reference where we want people to move to and not just talk about the illness. So is wellness the journey on the path to health? It really is. It really is. I think one of the reasons, uh, I know we'll talk about the book later, but one of the reasons why I continually use a path to wellness in the middle of the other two sections, because every chapter is broken up into three sections, was really that path to where you need to be to get back to either where you were or to a comfortable place to where you can talk about something that's happened to you or loss that's happened to you or talk about maybe the recovery that you're in if you've dealt with an addiction issue. So we really use it when we talk about the path to wellness. It's just a phrase that we continually talk about Mm -hmm. amongst our senior leadership team at Grace Point, amongst the directors, because you can go from an inpatient Baker Act unit to where you're in crisis mental health for three to five days to moving to an outpatient you know, type of treatment to where you're seeing somebody once a week, every couple of weeks, also having a case manager or others or other programs to where you can move to where you get to be to where you're back in that place uh, that you really desire. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a lovely visual image. I think any, you know, we can all go to their different, you know, parts of a path. I like you know, I hike and snowshoe and do all sorts of things. So for me, it, it's a really lovely image because there's going to be chunks to it, but you're moving forward along that. So just to quickly define commonly heard terms that are used somewhat interchangeably, and I and I want to pull this out. One, on this podcast, of course, we talk a lot about words and the power of words, um, but I think it, it, it's in particularly important when we're talking about this topic, because I have a somewhat working hypothesis that the use of these terms almost interchangeably is part of what is perpetuating the stigma. So mental health, and this comes from mentalhealth.gov, they define it as mental health includes our emotional, psychological, and social well-being. It affects how we think, feel, and act. As opposed to mental illness, and I got this from psychiatry.org, Mental illnesses are health conditions involving changes in emotion, thinking, or behavior, or a combination of these. Mental illnesses are associated with distress and or problems functioning in social work and family activities. You okay with these definitions? Any edits, adjustments you would make? Yeah, I I think people sometimes overuse certain terms, and I think people don't have some a grasp of certain terms. So mental health really involves a lot of things. And I think when you talk about your overall mental health, you can talk about things like self-care. You can talk about things that are in your environment, things that are in your social group, all these different things and triggers that can help you along the way feel more complete or feel more well. I think mental illness is more of a definition or a diagnosis that kind of Mm -hmm. pinpoints exactly where you're at. So I know a lot of people talk about, I had an undiagnosed mental illness. And for a long time, my mental health was off. And so it's funny when you use those terms all together, uh, they're really referring to all the things that were off in their life, meaning emotional relationships, friendships, their physical environment was off. So I, you know, I I think more people are are being more comfortable using the term mental illness. I think more people are talking more comfortably about their diagnoses. Mm -hmm. And then I think when you talk about mental health, I think you talk about all the things including wellness, that help people with mental illness manage that each and every day. Yeah, I love that. 
In your book, Stronger Than Stigma, you say, one of the biggest factors I believe keeping the general public from understanding the importance of mental health and addiction is the messaging and outreach used by the mental health sector. All the national awareness organizations promote the same statistic, that one in five adults in America will experience mental illness in a given year. What they forget to promote is the fact that five out of five people have mental health, and by forgetting this, they discount the connection all of us have with anyone who has suffered from mental illness or addiction or is suffering today. Now, we know that during COVID, the statistics around, you know, mental illness and people struggling to manage their mental health, they've just, they've skyrocketed. So can you say more about how a reframe from alienating the one in five or whatever it is uh, during COVID that are struggling to focus on the connection we all share? Because I think that that's so powerful. And, you know, in, in messaging terms, this is kind of the negative to the positive frame. Can you say more about like what you're seeing in terms of that happening and what else we can do to accelerate, amplify that transition? Yeah, I think the one in five thing always stuck out to me. And I started asking other people, what is it that's really sticking out to you about mental health, mental illness, messaging? And they always would say, well, it's that it's kind of the statistic we just see over and over and over again with just a different graphic associated with it. So you could either say one in five people experience a mental health condition in a given year. You see one in five people experience a mental health condition in their lifetime. You see 20 to 25% of the population is currently experiencing a mental health condition. It all kind of adds up to be the same thing, but then that's it. And so I noticed when those statistics were being shared to any size audience, you always look to you always look for the best reaction in an audience to who's sitting on the aisle. Because if you say one in five, it's usually that person on the end looks at the four people next to them and wonders which one of those four it's going to be. And so that's when I kind of jumped in and said, wait a second, if we start putting out information that's already letting people decide whether or not they want to hear it, like, oh, one in five, that's not me, then I think you're already discounting the conversation moving forward. So I started starting i started ha- starting every discussion conversation speech just so the collective room would see the response of asking people who in the room has been impacted by mental illness uh, addiction or suicide either yourself your family or your closest inner circle of friends four or five friends and i started it that way instead of with the one in five because when i asked that question 95 percent or greater would raise their hand speak up or hit that little reaction button on zoom with the thumbs up and so that changed the climate of the room that changed the atmosphere of the room it was almost when you were live in person there was a collective deep breath that now you're in a safe place you're in a room with people that have also experienced something whether it's lived experience or whether it's a caregiver or whether it's someone with profound grief and loss. And so after that, everything I started saying when I started doing that, it changed the room and it made it easier for us to talk about. I think when you only bring up these statistics, there's you're always letting somebody escape the conversation. Right. And yeah. and I fa- and I found that especially with managers and HR departments and supervisors they were always looking for a way not to talk about employee mental health, not to talk about, uh, you know, I don't want to step on anybody's toes. That's their private life. This is their work life. And so it always gave them a little bit of reason not to have the conversation. So that's why I run towards it. Yeah. And I have the conversation because then there's no way to run because you, the only people that are uncomfortable in the room when I ask that question 
are just happen to be the four or five folks that luckily for them have never had to experience this or had somebody close to them experience it. So they were almost even more intrigued to learn how something so prevalent has escaped them for so long. So that's kind of one of my biggest critics of that. Yeah, I mean, sometimes a negative frame works better sometimes, but most of the time, especially right now when we are all just starved for hope and inspiration and um, all the positivity we can glom onto, you know, shifting that, but also giving, you know, the, the bummer, and this happens so much in marketing, is we use othering to distance ourselves from something that we don't want to be a part of, right? So if we're trying to look at marketing for good and as a force for good, the, the shift that you're introducing to a positive frame is so powerful because it actually, it changes who's in the seat, meaning I, I think hitherto, it's been the folks who are like, oh, I'm the one in five, you know, and then, and then I feel distant and now you're creating connection. And it's the folks who actually blessedly haven't had to deal with this, which as you said, is very rare. And then, so you're, you're inviting everybody into the conversation, which feels very powerful. Do you think... Um, I mean, you and I, before we kind of came, made it official that we were starting the podcast, we're talking about how one of the cool things about Zoom, once we got over both of us being speakers and whatnot, once we got over the Zoom and being like, I really prefer to be live, you're like, wow, one, you can connect with so many more people, but also there's been this, this drastic humanizing that has happened. And I'm wondering what you're seeing in that regard like, have you seen any impact of, like, I think we just all have a deeper sense of we're all human at a very fundamental level. It, it's been, it's been funny. I've seen social media become more social. I think, I think before you don't see as much, as many push messages out there. It's like, this is what I'm doing. I mean, there's still people that are always going to always show what they're doing 24 hours a day from the webinar that they're currently <laughs> on to their cat or dog in their lap to whatever they're eating. There's always going to be that. But I think uh, as in terms of mental health in these discussions, it's been interesting. I tell people all the time, it might not be appropriate to text me after nine o'clock because I'm a family person. I spend time with my wife and my son. But if you DM me at one in the morning, if you're having trouble, I'll respond whether that's Twitter or whether it's Instagram. And it's been funny that people have like, hey, I'm taking you up on this. If, if Here's my phone number. Here's my email. If you want to get back to me, if I, I could really use um, some, some help or some suggestions. People to follow for positivity, organizations, resources that you might know in my area, uh, just things like that. And so it's, I think it's become, uh, although we've seen a lot of negative on social media over the last couple of years, especially a lot of it's been politically driven. But I think if you look at sure. this topic, in particular, and how mental health has taken a turn, you know, publicly marketing, advertising, social. I think there's been a lot of good that's come of it because people have now been able to seek out people that inspired them or encouraged them uh, or empowered them and say, hey, I just wanted to touch base because you shared your story or because you shared multiple stories. I feel like I'm in a good place where I can share mine and yeah. you know what what are some things that can come of that. You asked about COVID earlier and I think one of the things that I've really found is for the longest time there was uh, a stigma to remote work there was a stigma especially in the social sector nonprofit sector of of working from home of flexible work schedule um, and then all of a sudden we were just all told to work from home and it's not really working from home. I've worked from 
home a oh, no. lot. Oh, no, 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 no. Thank you for bringing this up because this, <laughs> this is this is not working from home. I've this done is that. Not, this is not working from for home. For 16 years, I've done that. That's not what we're doing. It's uh, my wife's. My wife is on a Zoom call uh, 200 square feet away. My son is doing <laughs> e-learning 100 square feet away. This is not working from home. No. Um, and, uh, and we've been told that we had to be socially distant, but, what we, but we were never getting any instructions for what that was. And it, somewhere in those first few months, we became emotionally distant. So that really started impacting our mental health. And so I, I've seen what I think myself and others are starting to call the epidemic within this pandemic is the mental health crisis that's about to emerge, especially those in the social sector, especially those who are mental health professionals, especially those who are first responders, because we've taken on so much in a short amount of time. And yeah. Uh, I, so I want to repeat that for listeners because I want to make sure they heard it. The epidemic within the pandemic. That is powerful and resonates I mean, I think I, I, I'm i one to look for silver linings, full disclosure. I'm hoping that one of the silver linings is, you know, people, even folks like me who, you know, I've been blessed. I haven't dealt with mental illness. It has touched me very closely many times in my life. And I think I, you know, because of the epidemic within the pandemic, I can definitely relate more. Like I've had stretches where it's like, I'm not just bummed out for a few hours. You know, this is prolonged. This is deeper. And that, you know, I hope between that and some, some messaging marketing shifts that um, we, you know, we might be in a position because more people can relate to it. And I'm wondering, I mean, we might be too far gone, but I, I'm wondering if there's a way to get ahead of the curve a little bit. I feel like we have been behind this curve uh, around talking about and destigmatizing mental illness for a long time, but we have examples of large scale. So what you've been talking about, what we've been talking about is sort of a, a grassroots bubbling up approach to destigmatizing. But if we look at kind of very orchestrated grass tops or top down marketing, we have examples like the one out of California that came out of uh, Prop 63, which was specific to raising awareness about mental illness and connecting more folks with services. So they did a large scale campaign uh, and the RAND Corporation um, did the evaluation of it. And they found, in fact, it was, it was quite successful. So you know, I, this this moment feels a little to me akin to the moment where we were kind of getting it that like smoking was bad. <laughs> How, and we knew that, however, the tobacco companies were doing such a good job of uh, convincing us otherwise that it, it like took a long time for public health and norms to shift in a in a way that were truly supportive to society. And this is this is going to seem like a negative question, but I really think it's worth sort of exploring a little bit, like who benefits if, if anyone, because all I can see is upsides to destigmatizing mental health, to getting more folks connected with services. I mean, on every single level, there seems to be nothing but upsides. So then that, if this is persisting, we're left with this question of who who benefits from continuing to stigmatize mental illness? Yeah, I, yeah, and I've, I've, I thought about that. I know about that study. Uh, the only thing I could come up with, because it's hard to even fathom or, or, or think about who would, who would benefit from this. I think the only people that benefit are the people that aren't willing to change the current models of which they supervise and manage their people. And in their sphere, if you become more human-based and not ROI-based, what's going to happen to your company? What's going to happen to your leadership style? Will your shareholders be a part of that? So I think change is the number one reason for fear. Um, I think people just have, especially people, if you look at Gen X and 
and above. Look at the way we were supervised. Look at the way we were mentored. Look at the way the advice we were given. Uh, I was always told that if you have the opportunity to move for a better title and a better salary, you should take it. And that is not what's going on in this country anymore. And I, and if I look back at a couple of the times that I moved, I am almost horrified now. Like I moved just because I went from manager to director. I moved for $2,500 or something along those lines. That's, that's nothing because I wasn't taking into account the things that are important to people today. And if you look at who's in the workforce today, 70% of the entire workforce is made up of millennials and Gen Z. And they're not, they're not looking at title. They're not looking at salary. They're looking for a positive work culture. They're looking for organizations that care about their mental health and wellness. They're looking at mentorship and sponsorship. They want to work uh, with up-to-date and the latest technology. They want to feel like there's a connection to the vision or the mission of the organization that they have. They want their voice to be heard. In, in all of these top five or six things that they're, they're desiring, it's a little bit in complete left field from the things that, you know, I was brought up in and so many other people. So who's benefiting? I think people are just afraid of that switch because now it's that unknown. I've been a, I've been a manager of people for a long time. I've had over 300 employees. And now you're telling me I have to basically become retrained. And if I'm going to be effective as a leader, I have to be, I have to, I need to seek professional development and further educate of what today's employees desire and want. Because if I'm going to keep my best people and if I'm going to attract top talent, I have to change. And that's scary for a lot of people. We talk about that, that humans crave progress and we resist change. And so if I'm tracking what you're saying, it's sort of those who currently hold power, um, positional authority. And I wonder if there isn't an undercurrent of, I mean, one of the things I love about, you know, millennials and Zoomers is they, they are very open about, you know, even if I listen to my kids and they'll say things like, wow, I'm really anxious today, or wow, that was really triggering. We didn't say these things. And that, that there's sort of a, there, there's a vulnerability in saying that. So if I'm tracking what you're saying, it's less like a tobacco industry thing. Although, you know, maybe that exists and we just haven't, we don't know what it is yet. But it's more just a, a real resistance among among leaders currently because they might have to do some changing, they might have to show some vulnerability, other things like that. It, it is. I, I think it's scary for some people that the warning label is uh, new workforce may contain uh, authenticity and vulnerability. Uh, that is scary to some people who aren't used to it. That, I mean, if you're not, if you think about it, if you're not used to it, oh, no. if, if you're, if you're used to an authoritative authoritarian supervisory style and you're told now by HR, the reason, uh, our retention is so poor. The reason why we're losing good people is because we need to start looking at these things that are more important to, to the workforce today. That is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the millennials and Zoomers, you were listing off things, and the, the thing that keeps coming up is that they're looking for a sense of purpose, that, that their personal purpose aligns with the company or organization's purpose, and that is very different from, I mean, I'm a Gen Xer, and so Gen X and above, that's different, right? I, I, I always say, I mean, I feel so blessed to do the work I do. Uh, you know, it wasn't by design, maybe it was subconscious level was, but I, you know, I feel great purpose when I'm doing. I mean, I honestly believe that marketing can be a force for good, if we can do some shifting, because um, it hasn't always been used as force for good. 
And I'm also aware that, that that's kind of where that's rare, you know, it's rare to really dig what you do. My, my son is great about, cause you know, I work a lot, but it's fine. And he'll come and say, mommy, you know, I'm sorry you have to work so much. And I say, I, I am so blessed. I have this portfolio of just incredible things I get to do in a day. So sometimes I'm tired by the end of the day and a little bit cranky, but that's a blessing. And so, but the idea of, you know, this vulnerability and these shifts, that's, um, that's interesting that that's, you know, in your opinion, sort of what, what's holding us back that that rings true. Okay. I want to, I want to make sure that we talk about your book. Oh, for sure. I, I just want to say to close that that conversation is it redefines leadership. And for people that have always kind of identified themselves as leaders, that's scary because now you're you're redefining the term. And I, I think leadership today is much more about caring for the people doing the work and not just the work itself. And for people that have just basically lived their entire life and and received bonuses based on just purely outcomes, that's it's, it's difficult to swallow. And so I think that's where you're seeing the painful amount of change happen uh, in the workforce today. So, so if it is the case that kind of the target audience for shifting, shifting culture and shifting norms is leaders, how do we how do we reach them? I, I think once they once they realize and once they've been trained to understand what because everyone wants their organization to do well, and so it, you can make this ROI based. You can talk about mental illness is the number one reason today in this country for uh, loss of productivity, mm-hmm. uh, for workforce absenteeism. Uh, more people are missing work today because of mental illness than all the other chronic conditions combined, like back pain, asthma all these other things. So if you have identified it, if you're only able to get through people on on pretty much strictly a balance sheet level, we can do that and we can talk about that. And then I think when they said, okay, how do we combat that? What can we do about that? We're, we're, we're feel a little bit uh, shy to kind of start doing all these new programs. We don't know what our people really need. And I, I keep telling people leadership can simply change the conversation by normalizing the conversation. There's lots of things that we do already internally in our systems, whether it's employee uh, internet systems, employee message boards, bulletin boards and break rooms, all these things. The best part about mental health that I always tease about is there's a mental health awareness day almost every month of the year. So just to start (laughs) promoting those things makes it easier to slowly seep into your workforce that you care about those things. And then for leadership to lead those discussions or even, you know, be a little bit vulnerable themselves and share their lived experience or shared an opportunity where they, you know, suffered profound grief and loss or where they were a caregiver. It makes their staff when things happen to them, more likely to feel comfortable and safe to disclose when something happens to them. Yeah. I mean, imagine getting an out of office from your boss that said, I'm taking a mental health day. I mean, I, in terms of leading by example, that would just that would be huge. And actually what came to mind, I had forgotten this, but I had a boss who was, you know, had a, had a parent who was very, very, very ill. And they went and, you know, were there. And we knew that, I mean, this, this parent was on the cusp of death and that, that was pretty clear. But what they said was, but that's okay. You know, keep emailing and, you know, I'm available and text if you need anything. And I remember thinking this was like 20 years ago. So it was, you know, well before uh, I would say uh, mental health and taking care of your mental health was on people's radars in any substantive way. And I'm, but I do remember thinking like, 
wow, that's not a great message to send. It's not a good example to set. That's not, you know, we're all hard workers. And what that says is, even if your parent is dying, <laughs> even if your parent is dying, you're still going to work. And I, I hope that that the opposite of that will soon become the norm. And I think, and I'm going to transition to your amazing book, that your book, like if I were a leader, business nonprofit, does not matter, a leader of any sort, one of the first things I would do is read your book, Stronger Than Sigma. And in the book, you share 12 stories, including your own. And, the, and these are wide ranging. I mean, they're about mental health, they're about addiction, it's about loss, it's about love, it's about grief, it's about shame and resilience and, and grace. And I'm I'm hoping that you will share with us both what, what inspired you to write the book. I think we have a sense for that now. <laughs> we sort of covered it. But if there's anything else you want to add on that, you know, and which which stories particularly resonated with you? I know I can say as me as a parent, the ones by other parents certainly uh, uh, struck a very deep chord, Rita Lomans. But I'm, I'm curious your thoughts as the author. Yeah. One thing that I looked at, and I think people have to understand the context for the book, when when COVID happened and we lost the ability to be in front of people in a live format, the actual, the largest event that we have at the foundation is actually called Stronger Than Stigma as well. And we started to find that when we started the event a couple of years ago, we were worried that the Tampa Bay community, the Tampa area, greater Tampa area, wasn't ready to start talking about mental illness. We had never really done it as an organization. When I came in, they focused on kids and not adults. Um, and that's our primary population. So when we started bringing people in to share their lived experience, whether they were in active recovery, whether they were at a bipolar di diagnosis, depression, anxiety diagnosis, or whether they were a caregiver, that resonated unbelievably with our audience. And so since we couldn't get in front of people uh, in 2020, the idea was let's create a book that went all in on that idea of storytelling. Let's create an opportunity to where we can get these stories out knowing that so many people were suffering right now, knowing that so many people because of, and I think you talked about silver linings earlier, the silver lining of 2020 and the pandemic is that I think more people have become empathetic to people who actually suffer each and every day. And that's what we need. We need more empathy with this instead of, you know, diminishing people who are suffering. We need to support them and empathize with them. So for leaders, um, I'm like, what can I get out there that I hope leaders would want to read and I, I think the goal for leaders really was to just promote the acceptance and inclusion uh, of those dealing with mental health uh, related issues and addiction related issues. And then how can we improve those support systems for that population? And so I wanted to target leaders within this community with a, a, a wide range of perspectives, uh, diversity at all levels. And have me tell their story in the first person. And that was the trickiest part because a lot of these stories resonated with me. And I'll, but the best thing about all these amazing people was nobody felt that their story was worthy enough to be put in uh, this book, which is unbelievable in its own right. But to have them all be at a place where they're willing and able to trust somebody with their story and to put it in, in, in a, in a context in, in, a, in, a, in a fragmented way that was a little bit different than they had ever done before really took a lot of uh, faith on their part. And that was an opportunity that I spent a lot of nights 
worrying about. And they were part of the process the entire time. And I think just to give context, each story has three parts to it. We've kind of already mentioned that. It has a part that's called My Story, where we just kind of explain why they're why they're part of this book and why they're and what and what that perspective is, whether it's somebody who lost somebody to suicide or, or to a violent crime, whether it's somebody who's been uh, sexually assaulted or abused, whether it's somebody who's dealing with a, a diagnosed mental health condition. And then we quickly move into that path to wellness. Like what it what did they do? And some of them despite incredible odds and challenges, what did they do to get to a place to where they were comfortable with who they are, comfortable sharing their story, and then put them on a path to wanting to be of service to others. And that's the call to action. It, every every personal story ends with a call to action. And everyone's doing something differently. Some people are very public, writing articles that are featured in magazines. Uh, three people did TEDx talks, number of people written books to more private where people are very involved in their church, very involved with family groups, very involved with support groups, want to be behind the scenes, helping people who've lost people, uh, others or family members to suicide. So I'm um, personally connected to a lot of these stories. Um, I know you said the parent ones really connected with you. I think the ones of people who've just been through unbelievable amount of challenges. And, and, and one of them, uh, Vanessa, is uh, one of these stories. And when you read her story, a young lady who was sexually abused by family members, and then when that experience was over, has a little bit of a peace and, and, is, and is working through a lot of these things, then gets raped on a trip visiting a college. And, and now she has to experience all these things with rape culture. Uh, shame, not knowing that she can, who she can tell her story to, not knowing who she can trust. And, and that's scary. And, and to read this story from this amazing person, uh, Vanessa McNeil, I didn't say her full name, uh, and to see what she's done with her life and to see that she takes on tough topics. She's now an award-winning documentarian. She's taken on uh, men who have been sexually abused. She's taken on human trafficking. Uh, she's taken on uh, women who have been victims of sexual assault. She tells her personal story on stage after stage after stage. You know, it's just amazing. And you're just completely inspired by people like that. But everyone has a reason why you can be proud of them and inspired about them. But I think the I think when people read this book, they read it knowing that that question I ask everybody at the beginning of every talk, who has been impacted in some way? And those 95 plus percent of people raise their hand. It's a lot of those people read this book and they're like, you know what? I've been wanting to get involved in some way and just didn't know how. And the book is for them because it inspires them to get involved. Yeah. Well, one of the things I appreciate about this book. Yeah. You don't, I mean, I was going to say, you don't just give inspiration like that. I, even if you had just stopped with the 12 stories, it would be a gift to the world. This book would be in, I mean, I have so much respect and just, uh, yeah, for, for the folks who were brave enough to have you tell their stories, but, but you bridge from inspiration to action. Um, and I mean, you don't hide it. The subtitle is a call to action. <laughs> So it's not like it makes us like, what? But but one of the things that I found most interesting about the call to action piece was that you have an overall call to action, then you have a call to action for men, then for businesses, and then for the, kind of the government, so general advocacy. So can you 
break down the, the different calls to action. I mean, there's a theme to it, right? Um, but there seem to be some specific things to each. Yeah, I mean, the, the story's kind of set up everyone's personal call to action. And then, and now I kind of want to address some of the issues where I think stigma is getting held up. And I talk about friends and family because the first person anyone discloses to is usually a a family member or a close friend. And sometimes it's that initial reaction they get, which Mm -hmm. keeps them silent for the next five to 10 years. And I think as, as, as close friends and as family, we don't want anyone that we're associated with to be hurting. So sometimes when someone discloses something to us, it's never truly the full extent of what's going on. So our response usually is quick. It's usually not as empathetic as it should be. Um, you know, we want to give just like, you know, don't worry about it. Go for a run. It'll be better tomorrow. You know, there's other fish in the sea, whatever you want to say, there's always something, you know, time will heal all wounds. We say these platitudes, but we look back at it later. Like, did they just disclose to me something serious? And I did not take it that way. And you never know what they're hiding and when they disclose, because no one just fully comes out and says, Erica, I'm having suicidal thoughts every night. I don't know what to do. That's not how it, they'll say, I'm not sleeping well. I'm having negative thoughts. I don't know. And, and, and you try to figure out what the root problem is. And you try to solve it in five minutes or through text. And then you walk away going, I think I just really helped my best friend when they're walking away going, man, that did not go well. Uh, so we take on that and really explain to people how better to respond to, to people disclosing and how traumatic it can be and how it can impact them when you, when you respond in a poor way. Um, then we take on men. Uh, I think as a, as a two-time college athlete, former pro athlete, I'm surrounded by, uh, overly, uh, masculine culture a lot and, Men do not take mental health seriously. I don't know why they're not taking mental health seriously. They should be. I think there's a, a, too much of a toxic masculinity in this country where if anyone discloses a mental health condition, uh, they're, they're automatically shamed and perceived as weak. So we have to address that. Men are uh, dying by suicide four times greater than women and, and much more violent means. So, you know, there's just a lot going on to unpack that. And I try to unpack it as best I can, starting with just how we raise young men and that perception that anything disclosed about feelings and emotions is is wrong. And then the last part of that is addressing it at work, which really is talking about, we spend more time almost at work than we do any other place. How can organizations, companies, businesses create a culture that's more uh, accepting of those who disclose and supportive of the wellness and mental health of their overall employee base? And what are some of the things that they can do that are at basically zero cost to low cost that they can incorporate today to change their work culture? So if we're going to talk about a call to action, we're going to talk about inspiring people to do something, you really got to lay out what that can be. And so I, I try to lay that out as best I can. Yep. It is. It's a roadmap. I really feel like it's a roadmap to finally destigmatizing mental illness. It is. I challenge anybody to read this book and not be totally inspired to take action, either personally, professionally in the workplace. I, that I, I issue that challenge because <laughs> it is, it is so moving. Ian. You have a poem in here, which I would like to read. And this poem is by Albert Rios, I believe, written, Alberto, sorry, Rios, written in 1952, um, called When Giving is All We Have. One river gives its journey to the next. We give because someone gave to us. We give because nobody gave to us. 
We give because giving has changed us. We give because giving could have changed us. We have been better for it. We have been wounded by it. Giving has many faces. It is loud and quiet, big though small, diamond in wood nails. Its story is old, the plot worn, and the pages too. But we read this book anyway, over and again. Giving is first and every time, hand to hand, mine to yours, yours to mine. You gave me blue and I gave you yellow. Together, we are simple green. You gave me what you did not have, and I gave you what I had to give. Together, we made something greater from the difference. Ian, I want to say you have given with this book and your work and your speaking and your general overarchingness, awesomeness as a human. You have given so much to this world. I really hope anybody listening, and I'll put it in the show notes, how to buy the book because it is, it's a, I think it's a game changer for how we talk about, think about, and then ultimately experience um, as a society, mental illness and mental health and getting on that path to mental wellness. So thank you so much for this gift. Well, thank you. And I, that poem, you know, everyone gave me their personal truth and their story. And I honestly think that stories have the ability to, to just impact us on a profound level. And especially when we feel a strong connection to the storyteller. And, you know, I just try to be a storyteller of these incredible people who have been through something extraordinary and their stories. I, I mean, even trying to tell them as best I can, I mean, stories have this this common ground to allow us to, to communicate and overcome our differences, but also to better understand each other. And I think anyone dealing with anything right now, mental health related, addiction related, recovery related, can read this book and, and feel connectedness with a number of people uh, in it who share. And that's what I, and that's what I, I want to happen because everyone who experiences anything, and I'm very open about being a caregiver, I'm very open about my own battles with depression, and anxiety, no matter who it is, we always, the first thing we always feel is that we're alone in this feeling. And the one thing I want to share in this book is that you're not, and there's, there's people out there that care about you. And there's people out there that want to inspire you uh, to get through whatever it is you're going through right now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. At the end of every episode, I ask, um, you know, I say, do good, be well. I just, I say that, yeah, with, with greater urgency, I guess. I, I do also like to close by asking every guest what inspires you and what keeps you motivated to do this work. And I mean, this can be tough work. You're, you're talking about tough topics. Right. I, I think it, it's just from the process of this book, although the subject matter was so heavy, um, sad, very sad in so many different ways. I think when I see people that give themselves and their story to others. When I see people that want to commit themselves to service to others who have been through so much, that to me is completely inspiring. And some of these people that I deal with, uh, so many people that are and from the book that, I, that I've dealt with writing the book and so many people that I work with at my organization, Grace Point, who have, who have suffered the loss of loved ones, who have seen loved ones battle and struggle with addiction and that they continually want to give themselves to help others. It's, it's unbelievably inspiring. Well, the book is inspiring. You are inspiring. I just can't say thank you enough. And I'm really proud of you for writing this book <laughs> on a personal level. We've known each other for a long time. And I'm like, look what Ian did. It's, oh. <laughs> it's incredible. 
Thank you. Yeah. So I will say at the end, as I always do, but with greater empathy and urgency to all of our listeners, thank you for listening to this. I hope you leave as inspired as I am. Um, I really do hope everybody buys the book, particularly the leaders, since um, that's where the shifting needs to happen. And that you'll continue to do good and be well, and that we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Marketing for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, subscribe, review, and share on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about Claxon University, how to make more impact in and for your organization, or hiring me to speak or coach, go to klaxonmarketing.com or reach out at info at klaxonmarketing.com. Again, thanks for listening, and thanks for making our world a better place.